Oh, yeah. We talk with one of the newest members of the top 25. So that's cool. Very timely. Yeah. I I went to a game at Albion, Sprinkle Sprandle Stadium in 1996. Not too long. No, it was 1997. Um, so near-ish to when Albion was among the very best in Division Three. If we'd had more than five minutes, I can guarantee you Sprinkle Sprandle Stadium's name would have been on the list of things to talk about. <laughs> football fans it's now time for the d3football.com around the nation podcast here are your hosts pat coleman you have a very forceful handshake mr coleman and greg thomas thank you greg that was interesting too it's the d3football.com around the nation podcast your weekly podcast about the largest division of college football the funnest division in college football we welcome you to podcast number 311 season 16 episode 11 of the podcast for september 19th 2022 or the one that is right now at the top of your player queue i'm pat coleman the guy who runs d3football.com and the guy who has to chase down the last couple of top 25 voters every sunday for 11 weeks in a row and i'm greg thomas i am the around the nation columnist at d3football.com and pat week three did not have the headlining marquee matchups that we enjoyed in week two but it did have plenty of great action and some top 25 upsets as well it sure did uh, we will talk about some of those things we will talk about what are the new teams in the top 25 and we'll talk with the head coach of albion dustin buer yeah we would do a p101 right here but you know We've done so many P101s in the last couple of weeks. Just trust me, that is how Coach pronounces his name. We'll talk with him for our fast five minutes uh, about the Britain's success so far this season. Uh, we'll talk about, I don't know, kind of an unlikely upset or maybe another unlikely upset. And, you know, then some of the things that are coming up this week, we'll give a hand out our game balls, we'll do our stats of the week, we'll run through all the regions, all of the things that we now if you've been listening for the last several weeks, no, this is the new list of things that we do every week. So uh, glad to be uh, glad to be doing those things. Just so surprised Saturday, though, about Loris beating Central. Loris out of Dubuque, Iowa. First win for Loris against Central in 2015. First win for Loris at Central in 2008. And in as they would say, dramatic fashion. It was dramatic. Loris scored three times in the last five minutes and four seconds to stun Central, 38-35. to 35. The Duhawks, they capitalized on two Central turnovers in the fourth quarter to take a 35-28 to 28 lead. Central, who we've seen playing what seems like 100 of these kinds of games in the last few seasons, uh, engineered what looked like a game-saving drive, ending with Brady Ketchum completing a 16-yard pass to Jeff Hebers that tied the game at 35 apiece. With just 43 seconds left, the Duhawks would not settle for an overtime, though. They efficiently ran six plays in 37 seconds, worked the ball up to the central 20-yard line, and set up Aiden Driscoll for a game-winning 37-yard field goal. Here's the thing about this game, the thing I wish I could go back and watch, because you can't go back and watch for whatever reason. Now we're hiding all of our archives in Division Three football, but apparently... Aiden Driscoll had two shots at this field goal. He missed the first one, but Central had called a timeout. And then when he came back out, he drilled it. You know, that last second timeout, it's a it's a really great play when it works. And then sometimes it just is worth an extra swing for the kicker. 
I know it does work sometimes. We just never seem to talk about those times, right? Credit to Loris. They were 0-2 on the season and went into Central, Central ranked number 12. And I think we kind of maybe expected a backslide from Central. You, I mean, it's hard to lose the Gallardi Trophy winner and stay up in that top 10, top 12 area. But losing late to Loris was a surprise and really just several mistakes for Central over the last five minutes of the game that really, really cost them here. I think I had Central about 22 or so, maybe 21 on my ballot last week. You look, I look at the teams that lost. I'm like, yep, Central. I, I did have them ranked. I had them on my ballot, but not very high. Platteville, of course, I think you and I have talked. I did not have Platteville on my ballot, and I don't believe you did either. W&J, I think, snuck in at the bottom of my ballot this past week, and I have not been voting for Muhlenberg all year. I've been waiting for them. I, I see the surprised look on your face, viewer or listener at home. But I just, you know, same sort of thing, right? It's like a generational quarterback. And, you know, Central lost a bunch of guys defensively. I don't know that Muhlenberg had nearly as many losses around the rest of the ball. But I just felt like those were a couple of teams where I was going to wait for them to play their way in rather than grant them automatic status based on how the season ended last year. Very fair way to approach the ballot. I had been voting for Central a little bit higher than you. I had been voting for... Muhlenberg and I did have W&J in my top 25 this last week at, I think at 25 so those are the three top 25 teams that were upset not counting Platteville who uh, you're correct I was not voting for this past week but Central and Muhlenberg kind of similar situations losing um, so much talent I thought Muhlenberg may have a little more staying power they've been a really good program for a number of years they've been deep in the playoffs it's the kind of foundation that Feels like you can stay in the top 25 even after you graduate a, a Michael Natkowski kind of player. But Muhlenberg, one and two early on. Obviously, tough loss to UMHB down at the Cathedral. Um, but Ursinus, Ursinus has their number a little bit at home. Absolutely. We'll talk more about Ursinus. We'll talk more about uh, some of these other games. But let's talk about Case and W&J. I had to kind of lift out of the D3 verse for about an hour on Saturday night. When I left, Case and W&J was a very close game. When I came back to the game and I had it on my big screen TV in my living room, I had to refresh the video player just to make sure I hadn't missed something because basically the score hadn't changed. No, it was a defensive battle there, and the Spartans knocked off number 25. Washington and Jefferson uh, in Cleveland on Saturday night. Drew Saxton, he hit on touchdown passes of 42 yards and 59 yards, and then just let the Spartan defense hang on to get a crucial President's Athletic Conference victory. The Spartans had seven sacks on the night, including two in critical goal-to-go situations in the fourth quarter. Washington and Jefferson's last chance to win this one literally slipped through their hands as uh, Case Western punt was mishandled with just one minute and three seconds to play. The Spartans recover two kneels, and that's a big win for Greg Debliak and the Case Western Reserve Spartans. Yeah, I think if you're W&J, right, you fail on that uh, inside the red zone there with a about a minute and 40 seconds or maybe even less to go. You got all three of your timeouts. You stop Case. Case gives you a gift by committing a penalty so you don't even have to use the third timeout. And you're getting the ball back somewhere, you know, maybe just short of midfield with uh, 63 seconds to go in a timeout. 
I think you have to feel pretty good about yourselves until the ball just slips right through the punt returner's hands and everything goes, everything just changes immediately. Yeah. And that's another one of those instances where late, late turnovers came back to buy the 20 uh, top 25 team this week. We'll be talking more about what happened in week three coming up in just a moment, but we shouldn't go any further without recognizing our friends who support the d3football.com website, the podcast, d3sports.com in general, using the Patreon service. Patreon is a service which allows people uh, such as us who create content to uh, solicit subscribers, people who want to help support the endeavor whatever that endeavor happens to be on a monthly basis so people can subscribe for anywhere from like three dollars up to fifty dollars and there are people who do each of those extremes i am not making that up uh that is something that absolutely happens and it's very helpful to us here to make sure that we can uh keep this uh website and the podcast operating here's the thing greg this time of year we are creating expenses, we're spending money, we're hiring writers, we're doing that sort of thing. But we don't get paid from like the major ad brokers until the last couple of days of October for everything that's going on right now. And thankfully, the folks who support us on Patreon are like kind of floating us for another six weeks or so. They really do. Our Patreon subscribers help fuel all of that D3Sports.com family of sites, but during football season, you see that support manifested in the regular cycle of coverage that our readers see throughout each and every week. Features columns around the nation, on-site coverage on Saturdays, the live scoreboard on game day. All of it is made possible by our Patreon supporters. If you enjoy D3Football.com and all of the coverage that the site provides, consider joining our group of Patreon subscribers or support the site with a one-time donation. Maybe you're already a Patreon subscriber. Thank you. Thank you. It's homecoming season, and you can continue to support uh, D3Football.com by spreading the word to your fellow fans at your next home game. So that's patreon.com slash D3Sports. Or if you want to do a one-time donation, which we've gotten those in the last couple weeks as well, thank you for that. You can go to D3Sports.com slash help. All right, Greg, coming out of Saturday, I started pulling up the top 25 votes, the ballots as they come in on Sunday. And I was maybe only slightly surprised to see Harden Simmons with a number one vote. As uh, we've mentioned, I think on the very last podcast, Harden Simmons was number two on somebody's ballot already. So for them to go up to number one after demolishing UW Platteville, let's be honest with you on the road, regardless of where you think Platteville should be ranked, they're still a, a, a team in a very strong conference. So I was not surprised by that per se. I was a little more surprised to see Trinity with a number one vote. It's a very interesting year. And I think this is kind of emblematic of how relatively wide open the division three football season is this year. Yeah. It's very rare that we see this kind of spread amongst our number one votes in any one given poll, maybe in a season we might get three or four or five teams that receive votes, but all in the same poll, it almost never happens. And now to see teams that are ranked, sixth and seventh received number one votes. I think that is a very, I think that's a first for our poll as well. Yeah. I think there's voters out there that definitely see an expanded list of national championship contenders. Um, a lot of them seem to be concentrated in the state of Texas, but 
Um, (laughs) you know, I think it's, I think it's exciting for poll watchers to see that kind of spread and see more teams getting recognized as number one. Indeed. Yeah. Nobody ranked sixth or seventh has ever gotten a number one vote in the, our top 25 before this week. We've been doing this top 25 since 2003, just for a reference, uh, Trinity, it's the first time they've ever gotten a number one vote. What in the name of Michael Burton's going on around here? And then uh, Harden Simmons hasn't gotten a number one vote since week 11 of 2004. And I hear you out there. I hear you fans asking, what the heck has Harden Simmons ever done to merit a number one vote? You're probably a Mary Harden Baylor fan. Let's be honest. Look in the mirror. I know that. We see it. We see it all the time. Anytime anybody says anything positive about Harden Simmons at this point, it's a Mary Harden Baylor fan who's going to be up in our tweets to uh, complain about it. But here's the thing. You guys can make this a moot point on Saturday, Mary Harden Baylor, by winning this game, this game upcoming on Saturday. Regardless of what happens on Saturday, I'm pretty sure the number of Harden Simmons number one votes is going to change. It's either going to go to zero or it might increase to, you know, two or three or something like that. If that's something you want to occupy your mind with this week coming into this game, go right ahead. I'm not going to let it bother me. And I would offer a nice piece of comparative results data with Wisconsin Whitewater if you're looking for to validate Harden Simmons as maybe a number one ranked team. But yes, I think we're going to probably discuss this game a little bit more toward the end of the pod. And this is a big game. Maybe maybe UMHB playing for their postseason, uh, postseason chances here. Harden Simmons looking to finally, finally get over that UMHB hump. Been a long, long time. Another thing in the poll that I found just kind of amusing the whole season is that uh, Ithaca and Cortland have been basically joined at the hip all year, careening toward that Cortica Jug game in Yankee Stadium in the Bronx in Week 11. I am uh, looking forward to that. I put in my credential request this week, so I'm feeling, I'm feeling like next, next I will, uh, next I will book a flight, and then I will spend way too much on a hotel room because I don't think I have a choice in uh, New York City. So there's that. But these are the things I'm looking forward to. I just like that. You know, they keep winning. They keep winning big. There's not much reason to make any changes in where those two teams are ranked. No, we're going to continue to compare these teams all the way down to week 11 in that Cortica Jug game. Really, all of the pieces are lining up for that to be one of the marquee week 11 games and a week full of marquee games. Ithaca and Cortland maybe playing for a top regional seed position there. Maybe one of those teams playing to get into the playoffs via pool C both teams will know what their uh, conference situation is by that time as they will be finished with conference play, but big stage for a very, for what looks like it's going to be a very big game, possibly a couple of top 10 ranked teams by the time we get to that stage. Where else would you rather play that game other than Yankee State? I think any place that I could play it in front of 30,000 some fans, I'd be glad to do so. See you all met. You all met. You all met. Now on Fast Five, joined by Dustin Buer. That's how you pronounce that name. He's the head coach of uh, Albion. He's the head coach of, of a team that's 3-0. Had a pretty successful first three weeks of the season. Coach, thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me, Pat. Tell us a little bit about uh, your guys' run this season. And also, you know, coming off of last year's, the way the season ended in the playoffs, and then getting a chance to kind of get back on the field this year. It's a pretty good run so far. Yeah, I think the loss to lacrosse last year 
kind of opened our guys' eyes of like, hey, we've made it to this point finally, but now what does it actually take to take the next step? And, um, you know, when you play those Wisconsin schools, I mean, they just beat Wayne State yesterday here in our state. They're they're going to be physical, starting close to playing like a Division two school, obviously, right? It opened our guys' eyes to like, hey, we got to take nutrition, strength training a lot more serious than maybe we have in the past, pay attention to our body composition. And, and you know, we might not get a bunch of like six, four linebackers like Rusty in the middle they had last year, but they, uh, but I, but I think our guys took that serious. So I'm liking where we're at physically as a team. I think it opened our eyes there. They attacked the off season and then, you know, spring was good. Justin was Justin Thomas was with us in the spring. Jack Bush was not with us in the spring. He was interning at Northwestern. So that made things interesting there where we were able to get uh, Luke Lovell, all, a lot of first team reps. And he's been the guy the last couple weeks after Jack got hurt in the, in the second game against Bluffton. One thing I love about our guys is just the way we're preparing right now. And, and we're just trying to be the best versions of ourselves. It doesn't matter who walks off the other bus or out of the other locker room. We just preach being the best versions of ourselves every day. And if we, we do that, we're going to be a tough out for teams i really like that you started with nutrition tell me about that versus the rest of the strength training which i know you also mentioned yeah yeah so aaron mel does our strength training he does a great job with our guys they're real bought into the program i don't think our guys were paying as close attention as they needed to as far as caloric intake just your basic proteins and, and creatine uh, supplementation that i think is helpful we really focused on that during the off season and, and we were really uh trying to celebrate especially in the spring when during practice time when we could track weights, you know, legally division three wise guys seeing themselves have success and, and, and showing growth. Cause you, the easy thing to do is when you're a hard gainer is just say, I can't gain weight. Obviously I don't have that problem. I wish I had that problem, but uh, I told these guys, they're fortunate that they get to eat their faces off to, to, to become a better football player, put their bodies in better position. And I think while they were gaining the weight and becoming stronger, we've also become more explosive. I know you have one more non-conference game left, and it's that game you guys come basically almost all the way to my front yeah. door to play UW-Eau Claire. But I want to talk about the MIAA in general this season. A fantastic season. It's like 19-2 and two the conference is right now. And obviously, right, the level of non-conference action is what it is, but that's, a, that's obviously a tremendous start for the league as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. I think our conference has a lot of parity in it where, you know, you're, you're, any team can knock off any team any week, especially once you get in the conference. And there's so so much familiarity with other programs and, and the rivalries that have been around for a long time. And I think a lot you'll see like myself, Coach Zorbo, Coach Couch. Coach Sturzma, Coach Deer, we're all alums too of our program, so those yeah. rivalries run a little deeper. It's a unique deal, and you know, Kalamazoo's three and zero right now. Um, yeah. You know, Adrian's they, they, their toughest game right now was was Heidelberg, who Heidelberg's turned out to be pretty darn good. I think uh, Adrian's got a, a real explosive running attack, and then you know, Coach Sturzma's done a great job up at Hope College, and Coach Abs continues to do a. Uh, he's the only nine one, but he's he's been at trying long enough, you know that. He's dang close to being a, a trying lifer there as a coach, and he's done a great job. His team's going to be an aggressive team that you play. Coach Moose and I, Yuselowitz at, at Olivet, we actually went to high school together, played on the same high school team. We've known each other okay. since we are old, and he does a great job there. So I think you get good coaching, you get a lot of good players, and then those matchups mean a lot to our players just because we. I'm sure it gets instilled in everyone's brain. A to beat Albion probably, and that's not to be an arrogant thing. I think like we got a target on our back, so we make sure our guys understand the way they work, uh, and that's more because of our tradition that we've had here. 
You're a 05 grad, right? So the mm-hmm. 1994 national championship was before your time, but a lot closer for you than it is for the guys who are there now. How do you keep the current kids invested in something that now for them happens not quite 30 years ago, but pretty close? I think the unique thing that we've tried to do is really get our alumni base back in the fold, especially that era. I've become close with some guys that played on that team and they've come and uh, spoke to our, our players. And then even guys back to our undefeated teams in the late 70s, I think it's 77 team. We make sure our guys understand the the tradition of the program. I think there were, I've been here at times where players just assumed that because of the tradition, we're going to roll football out. Albion's going to be ready to play. We just we we make sure it's an emphasis of hey guys, like it's your responsibility to build on the tradition. You don't just get to become a part of it. You have to build on it, and that's something that we hammer all the time. So, Greg, we did not get to talk about the origin of Sprinkle or Sprandle in the stadium, but bottom line is. Albion's looking better than they did last year when they were rolling through teams. I Obviously, Carthage is not going to be in the top half of the CCIW, right? And Rose Holman, you know, Rose Holman is, has struggled this season, but has played some pretty decent competition on the way to that 0-3. I mean, that's a, that's a really good start going into this uh, Eau Claire game coming up next week for Albion. It is, and I liked what Coach Buer had to say about the lessons that they took from their lacrosse game it's you know about the the physical nature of being able to play and go into that second and third round of the playoffs it looks like they've taken that to heart they every time i looked up at that uh albion rose Holman game this weekend an albion player was running toward the end zone free a lot of explosive plays a lot of big plays out of that offense absolutely frightening to think what that offense could have looked like had Justin Thomas come back for another year to Albion. Well, let's talk with uh, Coach Buer about Justin Thomas as well. Coach, you mentioned Justin Thomas earlier in our podcast. He was a guy, like a lot of guys at Division Three, who have taken this extra year and have gone on to you know transfer and play at Division One. He's playing at Eastern Illinois right now. What do you think about that? How's he doing? That sort of thing. I'm proud of him, and, and I think he had to take – a real leap of faith to go make that work. You're not guaranteed anything when you go do something like that. I know Coach Davis approached me in June uh, at a camp, the offensive coordinator, uh, Adrian College alum, actually, uh, Joe Davis, uh, is the offensive coordinator at Eastern Illinois, and asked me about Justin. And I said, he's planning on coming back, but I'll call him for you right now. And I don't know that at first Justin was like kind of over, over that process. You know, it's early June. And then you know, we, we talked and I think he talked to his dad and kind of said, just go look at it. You know, what do you got to lose? Like you can always I'm not going to kick you out. You know what I'm saying? Like if you and and I think it, it's worked out really well for him. I think he really wanted to play, a, you know, another level up for his. He's got aspirations to continue playing after college. And so going against another level of competition, he thought would be good for him. And I, I couldn't have agreed more for him and just supporting him. I've talked to him through the process um, during training camp and stuff. And he's now they're starting outside. One of their starting outside receivers yep. game one, he had a heck of a game against Northern Illinois on TV. And uh, the last two games he's, you know, I think their offense has struggled just a tad, but he's he's led them in receptions or receiving yards the last two games as well. So he's continuing to do Justin Thomas things. We always thought he was a Mac type player out of high school. Obviously, not the only guy who went from Division three to Division one this year. Not even the only guy who did that as a wide receiver. But uh, yes, good to see that. And I think these are the things that you and I probably believed in our heart, but didn't necessarily have the empirical data to prove is that the top guys at division three can certainly compete at that level. Yes, they can. And I think it's a really fantastic gesture by coach Boyer to 
recognize that and sort of advertise that opportunity to Justin to go uh, and have compete at, at the FCS level would have been an easy, easy move to sort of selfishly say, I got another year, Justin Thomas, and leave it at that. Instead, some of those guys who are running free, as you were uh, talking about on Saturday, Mark Taco with two touchdown catches, including a 35-yard reception, Brendan Teal with a 29-yard reception, two touchdowns, Bailey Edwards, 34-yard reception and a touchdown, Clarence Weems Jr., a 51-yard reception and a touchdown on Saturday. Game ball. Game ball. Game balls. Game balls. Game balls. It's time for game balls, and my game ball goes to defensive end Ben Coyne of Carnegie Mellon. Coyne has certainly come up with some big performances up front in the past two big games for the Tartans. After recording three sacks in the win at RPI, Coyne added two more on Saturday in a 40-33 win against Grove City. Those numbers is a part of a performance in which... Coin was credited with nine tackles. That was a career high. He also tipped a pass to himself, intercepted it for the first pick of his career, then returned it 27 yards down to the five-yard line. Carnegie Mellon converted that into a field goal to take an early 10 to nothing lead. Coin did a little bit of everything, and he gets my game ball. My game ball is going to Brandon Washington, a sophomore slot at Gallaudet. Washington rushed 28 times for 160 yards and one touchdown. He also completed three of five passes for 80 more yards and two more touchdowns. And he caught two passes for 60 more yards and one more touchdown. The receiving touchdown would be the go-ahead score in the Bison's 34-31 win over the University of New England. A phenomenal effort by Washington and for passing, running, and receiving touchdowns all in the same game. He gets my game ball. Is there a name for that, Pat? Is that a hat trick, a triple crown? What do they call that? I don't have a good name for it. We'll have to find that out. If you have a good name for it, hey, tweet it at us using the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football. Greg is at Wally Wabash. Great performance for Gallaudet going all the way up to Biddeford, Maine, also and coming away with that 34-31 win. That's not my stat. Also not going to be my stat. Not my stat. That may be the most incredible stat. My stat of the week comes from one of the upsets we talked about a few minutes ago. That's the one where Case Western Reserve defeated WJ 14-10. So WJ was off to a 2-0 start this season, and safe to say their offense was clicking pretty well, at least before Saturday. In the first half Saturday evening, WJ punted five times on six possessions, which was as many punts as the Presidents had all season coming into the game. Case ended up forcing nine WJ punts in total en route to that win, and that is my stat of the week. The Endicott Goals defeated the College of New Jersey 28-7 on Saturday. The Goals forced and recovered three fumbles, which is not my stat. They intercepted three TCNJ passes, which is also not my stat. They had two of those takeaways returned for touchdowns. Also not going to be my stat. According to the box score, Pat Endicott was credited with a team total of 14 pass breakups, which is a huge number. And I confirmed is a season high for anybody in division three. And that is worthy of my stat of the week. Impressive. Are pass breakups like the new basketball assists? Do we trust that? (laughs) Uh, You know, great question. I guess someone could audit the pass breakups of any particular game. If there were a video archive available, Oh, wait. It's hard to pad football stats these days, right? They cracked down on tackles 
I'm looking at my calendar here. That's about 25 years ago they cracked down on tackles. Otherwise, you used to be able to give like five or six assists. Anybody who jumped on the pile, it seemed, got a tackle at some point. One instance, which does not involve any statistician, shall we say, currently working Division three schools, but I ended up auditing someone's punts and punt returns a few years ago um, because... I kept getting these incredible punting numbers from a particular school and I went and watched some video on that and the statistician was consistently pushing the distance of the punt another five yards deeper than where it actually was. And of course, then you know that adds like an average of five yards to the return, right? Because then the punt, uh, the punt return has to start from a different yard line. The only thing about pass breakups is it has to coincide with some form of incomplete pass. So... I suppose as long as TCNJ incompleted 14 passes, that's mathematically possible. They very much did. Now I need to see how many incompletions there were. There's 21 incomplete passes, three interceptions. Interceptions typically count as passes defensed slash breakups, but I see that's, yeah, and that's probably what happened. 14 pass breakups. Alfino Davis, three pass breakups and one tackle. If you don't let the guy catch it, he doesn't have to tackle him. I'm a real wild one. Going region by region, what's fun in the one? Rivalry games and games with trophies are always fun. And there's certainly a number of such games and trophies in the one. One of the younger ones is uh, still nonetheless one of my favorites, and that's the battle for the old maple sap bucket. So this might not be on the same level as the old funky knickers, but it's a real trophy, and that's helpful. This particular instance of the game, which is between Norwich and Castleton, was won by Norwich 26-21, which means that the cadets have won this game nine out of the 13 times it's been played. The rivalry is between the two Division Three football programs in Vermont that are actually allowed to play each other. Middlebury misses out by being in the NESCAC. Norwich scored the first 13 points on a Saturday. Then Castleton took a 14-13 lead. Norwich had a couple of field goals to go back up 19-14 and then added a touchdown to make it 26-14. Spartans scored with 3.56 left to cut the lead to five, but failed to cover the onside kick and never got the ball back as Norwich ran out the final three minutes and 50-some seconds of the clock. Bowden had fun in week one of NESCAC play in the one. The Polar Bears got all over the Hamilton Continentals, racing out to a 21-0 lead after three possessions, and they never looked back at a 41-13 win. The 41 points are the most Bowdoin has scored in a game since they scored 50 against Middlebury in 2009, which also is the last time Bowdoin won a season opener. Seeing this reminds me that uh, we're going to eventually talk about my NESCAC picks coming up a little bit later in this podcast, and I don't think they were particularly pretty. That one did not go your way. All right, uh, Greg, what's new in the two? 3-0 Morrisville State is new in the two. Following Friday night's 17-15 win over St. Lawrence, the Mustangs not only eclipsed last season's win total, but they are 3-0 for the very first time as a member of NCAA Division Three. Morrisville State was a junior college and a pretty successful junior college program, at least in the sport of football before coming to D3, which is now, again, I'm not going to look this up, but I think about 15 years ago at this point. 2006. 15 seasons ago then, because we'll take out the uh, asterisk of 2020. What's new in the two? Okay, let's see. So not Ursinus. They upset Muhlenberg last year. They nearly took down Johns Hopkins a week ago, and then they beat Ursinus again on Saturday. 
Also, not new in the two is uh, to have Brockport have a pretty stifling run defense. Not new in the two or in any other region is the rule against coaches using laptops and tablets in the coaching box. But apparently it's news somewhere. And I'm blaming Google. Long teal losing streaks aren't even new, although 40 games in a row is a new high. Or maybe that's a new low for the Tomcats. But new enough is having Union back in the top 25 after this week's win at Springfield. A 21-6 victory that proves you don't need technology in the coaching box if your defensive guys stay home and play their assignments. One other thing in the two. So we mentioned on last week's podcast about uh, Hobart. We never did receive a response from Hobart as to why quarterback David Cruson did not play against Morrisville in week two. But the coach did mention on his podcast this past week, here's what he had to say. Yes, unfortunately, uh, yeah, we went into that game. Uh, the, there were some decisions that were made that uh, they were out for disciplinary reasons and uh, did not help on top of that that we had really had three other starters on offense that, that didn't play or were out after the first series. We lost um, our left tackle, Ben Frank, early in the game. So all of a sudden they were shuffling three different linemen in different spots. Um, you know, Running back-wise, you know, Rayshon Boswell, Played only a couple snaps, and both he and Tim had not practiced all week. You know, so uh, when you talk about just the the perfect storm of you know, I, I we knew that there was going to be other guys that need to step up in that game, uh, and I thought we had opportunities to, and we did not. These days, Greg, I think we just need to record every coach's podcast and uh, mind that for the things that they're not going to talk about that they need to talk about. Absolutely, Pat. Who is feeling carefree in the three? Carefree in the three? Well, we might say that about Shenandoah. The Hornets got through the non-conference portion of the schedule at 3-0, including escaping Maryville with a 34-29 win. I'm sorry, including escaping Merville with a 34-29 win. I don't think I can even quite give that pronunciation the proper inflection. Uh, escaping Merville, Merville, Merville. It's like you you hang on that R a little bit. It's almost Murraville, M-U-R-R-A-H-ville. But you slur the two of them together, Murrayville. There we go. That's the way I wanted to say it. They escape from there with a 34-29 win. So Scott Yoder's players have maybe an extra day or so to enjoy this. They've got a bye week coming up in week four. But after going 3-0 and against the USA South, they start conference play in the ODAC with an October 1 game against Ferrum. Murrayville, by the way, had scored 19 points in the fourth quarter to take a 29-28 lead on Shenandoah. But the Hornets drove 78 yards and 13 plays, including a 20-yard TD pass on a slant from Stephen Hugney to Andre Jackson with just 24 seconds left. Meanwhile, if you're paying attention, you know this is twice now that Maryville has been knocked off in the final 30 seconds, and this leaves the Scots at 0-3 entering their USA South schedule. Greg, who else is feeling carefree in the three? Mary Harden-Baylor was feeling carefree in the three on Saturday night. After dedicating the field at Crusader Stadium to Pete Fredenberg, the crew put on a show for the home crowd in a 68-10 win over Southwestern. K.J. Miller set a new career record for punt return yards for the crew on Saturday night as well. I keep looking up attendance numbers at Crusader Stadium. 69.98 is what it was listed on Saturday. I keep wanting to get them on this list of most attended games in Division Three history. But these days, to make the top 50, you have to have 11,000 fans. That's a lot of fans. But really good crowd for the crew. They're going to show up for Coach Fredenberg. I think there were Coach Fredenberg souvenir cups flying around there. Really, really wild things going on at Crusader Stadium, including 68 points against Southwestern. That's what the 4 by 4 is for, son. That's what the 4 by 4 is for. 
All right, Greg, what's the uproar in the four? Jalen Epps caused an uproar in the four at Deeds Field on Saturday. The Denison Big Red defensive back returned two punts for touchdowns, one of 60 yards, one of 94 yards in Denison's 51-10 win over Oberlin. The Big Red are 3-0, but their opponents are a combined 0-7 on the season, so it's hard to know what to make of Denison just yet. Something I think we can say about pretty much all of the North Coast Athletic Conference right now, really. Denison is going to travel to Wabash this weekend. Uh, for a big North Coast game and first real first real test for the Big Red. Yeah, definitely one to keep an eye on. The uproar in the four was also heard at Muskingum. So for Muskingum uh, on Saturday night, this was the first game in their new stadium, the first game, the first football game played on campus since 2019 and played in front of a capacity crowd of 2,900 at the Bullock Health and Wellness Complex as the Muskies defeated Capital on Saturday night by the score of 37 to 7. Muskingum in the past, I think they've played on campus, playing now in a brand new stadium on campus and uh, sounds like a lot of fun. It was the 100th homecoming game in Muskingum history as well. (laughs) Who's looking alive in the five? How about the pioneers of Grinnell? We don't talk about them in the football podcast so much. And, you know, Dave refuses to talk about them on the basketball podcast. This whole thing is a travesty and a sham and a mockery. It's a travesty sham mockery. No making up words. Uh, but Grinnell went up to Lawrence on Saturday and won 28 to 7. Yeah, if you've got some Midwest Conference awareness, you'll know Grinnell beat Lawrence last year and they followed it with a win against Beloit. And, and all of a sudden they had two wins, which is a great season by Grinnell's standards, uh, especially of late. And that seems likely to happen again this year. There's a Grinnell and Beloit play coming up this week. But the difference is that this year, Grinnell gave up just seven points and it was on the road as opposed to last year when the Pioneers needed overtime to eke out a 35 to 28 win at home. So again, you know, Pioneers maybe a half step closer as they look to restore that former glory. If you didn't know, Grinnell was 10 and 0 in 1998. One of those multiple teams in 1998 who went 10 and 0 and got left home because that was the last year we had a 16 team playoff. That was one year before the AQ era. You're right. Who's looking alive in the five, Greg? The Washington University Bears are looking alive in the five for me, Pat. The Bears have won their first two games by scores of 54 to 7 and 52 to 7. The competition for the Bears has not been top quality, but they're winning by margins that would seem to make them the CCIW's best chance to complicate what I think is expected to be a de facto championship game between North Central and Wheaton. That game coming up on October 1st. Six feet. Who's getting their kicks in the six? The Northwest Conference got their kicks in the six on Saturday by taking six of seven games versus their West Coast rivals in the Skyac. The day's domination was punctuated with Pacific's dramatic overtime win over Pomona Pitzer, where Isaiah Petre caught touchdown passes with 19 seconds left in regulation to force an overtime. And then in overtime, Petrie caught his second touchdown pass of the day to walk off the Sage Hens 23 to 20. I am very grateful for you to be still awake when those games end, whereas these days I am just so exhausted by the end of a Saturday that George Fox hits the third quarter against Chapman. I'm like, okay, that looks good. I'm going to put my top 25 ballot to bed and also myself. 
But you know who else got their kicks in the six? I'm going to talk about Greenville for a second. I go from Grinnell to Greenville. Not at all a tongue twister. But, uh, the only team in the UMAC which has won a game, went out and won its second on Saturday as the Panthers defeated Manchester 49-22 to behind four rushing touchdowns from Paul Garrett. The program that brought us the Chicago Bears starting linebacker Nicholas Morrow, it has two in the W column, and it's the only two in the W column for the entire UMAC, which is a total of 2-16 and 16 headed into their final week of non-conference action, a week which includes Crown against UW Stout. Big underdogs there for Crown in that game. Making note of the uh, 2 and 16, we're going to have a conference ranking column coming up soon-ish. 2 or 3 weeks, we'll see, we'll see how that goes, but marking down those non-conference records. Right. We had the 19 and 2 we talked about earlier in the MIAA. This is probably going to be peak MIAA right now, right? I mean, obviously we don't, you know, you like to do this column and, you know, the tradition is the same. We try not to do this column until basically the entirety of non-conference play is in. But I think this is about as good as the MIAA could get. I don't know where that puts them. You know, out of 28 conferences is peak MIAA around 16 or something like that. But regardless, you know, been an interesting season for them. It has been. And I mean, you have to take a little bit of their competition into into play there. They've really loaded up on a lot of HCAC competition. Yeah. I mean, really, really strong non-conference season for the MIAA. I think they've got one more week of non-conference play and then off to conference play where all of these undefeated teams are going to start playing one another. Before we hit the mailbag, one other piece of news that crossed everybody's desk last week is yet another set of postseason bowl games. This will be between the Landmark Conference and the Old Dominion Athletic Conference. If you're not aware of the Landmark Conference in football, uh, the Landmark Conference is sponsoring football. We broke that news back in February. It's definitely beneficial to pay attention throughout the offseason. That's one of those stories. But, you know, by this point, by the time that starts in 2023, then 16 of Division III's football conferences will have a postseason bowl game to play for, as well as uh, participate, of course, in the NCAA playoffs for Division III. And we love those things here. I think it's a really good move for the Landmark Conference. You know, that's a brand new league setting out some, I mean, they've got a clean slate to build traditions for their conference. So um, Landmark versus ODAC, I think you can get some good matchups from that, uh, from those matchups as well. What I'm missing here, Pat, is a food sponsor. And um, <laughs> I hope that that, I hope that there is some regional chain in the Chesapeake area, Chesapeake Bay area that would like to attach their name to this, to this game. Yeah. Great question. Your, uh, your Chesapeake challenge has to be sponsored by old Bay seasoning, right? That would be a very, very appropriate sponsor for this old Bay seasoning, some sort of, some sort of reputable crab cake outfit. Oh, the best part about, I mean, not the best part about crab cakes. The thing about crab cakes is you can't really serve them in a uh, in an outfit such as that, you you don't really want, I'm guessing, you don't really want a crab cake from a chain. But I'll say this, and I've said it on the podcast before, for whatever reason, the best crab cake I ever had was in the press box at a Baltimore Ravens-Indianapolis Colts playoff game, like in 2007 or something like that. Just the peak crab cake that you could possibly ask for, at least in my opinion. Your categories have become tiresome. You've got mail. 
Yeah, we put out the notice on Twitter. You could email us. You could. You can't send smoke signals. We don't know how to read those. Carrier pigeon. I don't have a carrier pigeon uh, roost outside. But instead, we got a tweet from Brock Reisler, who is at Brock Reisler, asking, is the ARC Warburg's League to lose now? Does yesterday's Loris Central results say more about the Dewhawks or the Dutch? Huh. Interesting question, too. I think the first half of the question is yes. Does the Loris Central results say more about the Dewhawks or the Dutch? Great question. I mean, a little bit of both, right? It's I mean, that's the, that doesn't answer the question. That evades the question pretty pretty directly. But I think we learned that Central is, you know, maybe not the top twelve or top ten team that they have been in the last couple of years. Loris is, you know, that's a team that has sort of lived in the middle of the pack in the ARC for quite a while. I think they've got a solid quarterback there at Loris who made a lot of really good plays on Saturday. Um, Loris, clearly a team that if you are not on top of your game and Central did make mistakes and turn the ball over a little bit on Saturday, they can get you. So Loris versus Wartburg, that'll be a game to watch. But Wartburg playing really, really well so far this season. They had the... Uh, the super late night game at Monmouth to open the season. Then they had a shutout win against Stout. Uh, That's a really nice looking win now in light of UW Stout's win at Gustavus on, on Saturday. Uh, So Wartburg fresh into the top 25 this week. They appear to have taken over as the favorite in the ARC. Look forward to uh, Wartburg at Dubuque this upcoming week. Wartburg at Central two weeks later. On October 8th, I think one of the things that it shows about uh, Central is as much as we talk about losing Blaine Hawkins, and mostly that is me, I understand that, it's just as key the like six really standout guys that they lost on the defensive side of the ball. Yes, and that's I think that's where it is. I mean, it took 38 points to win that game. Uh, Ketchum had a really good game, 366 yards. Yeah. Uh, so offensively, Central still doing central things. Uh, but yeah, defensively is is a little bit where they got him this week. Looking ahead to next week, games to watch. And you know, the eyes of uh, lots and lots of people will be on number five, Mary Harden Baylor at number six, Harden Simmons. Here's my thing. We talked about it. You and I are not really sold on Platteville as a top 25 team last week. Unfortunately, you know, the other 23 voters didn't agree. It actually took eight of the 23 voters casting a ballot for Platteville in order for them to break into the poll. Regardless, you know, definitely an impressive win for Harden-Simmons. And we know, we know they will play Mary Harden-Baylor tough. They do on a consistent basis. They did for a significant portion of the game last year. If one of those three running backs for the Cowboys who gained between 66 and 73 yards this week can do it again, I think that's a huge lift for the Cowboys. I'm just glad that this one is in prime time where it can be seen by many, many people, which is important because apparently you just can't see games unless you're watching them live. I'm going to keep hammering that point. It drives me effing nuts, drives me up the Goram wall. It's I'm so Monday through Friday pissed off about games not being able to be watched after the fact. We have these great games, great for the brand of Division Three as a whole, that people cannot then go watch invoked a, a firefly reference there that was that was very good very very fresh reference great show by the way <laughs> go back and watch that if you have it firefly that you could go back and watch all 14 episodes plus the movie
For my game of the week or my game to watch this week, I'm going to stay in the three and I'm going to be watching Bellhaven at Huntingdon this week. The Blazers, they've been impressive in season opening wins against Millsaps and Southwestern. Uh, the competition ramps up for them this week as they travel to Montgomery for their first ever game in the USA South Athletic Conference. Huntington had no problem with Guilford this week. This looks like a game with two good offenses and may well end up being the game that decides the USA South Conference champion. Yeah, that's one of those little storylines that I'm really interested to watch this year is how Bellhaven does in the USA South. Just because Bellhaven was third in the ASC last year and they're going to a conference where you don't have a Mary Harden-Baylor and a Harden-Simmons uh, ahead of them. So be interested to see how that goes. Yeah, it's always interesting to see. You don't, you don't see it often, but it's interesting to see how teams from some of the stronger conferences transition into one of the other leagues. You'll hear our fourth best team would win your league. And now, you know, we're going to get a chance to see if that plays out uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. as Bellhaven moves from the ASC over to the USA South. Otherwise, coming up this week, keep an eye on St. John's at Bethel, especially if the Royals have Jaron Rosti back at quarterback. We don't know. We won't know until I'll get there, you know, about an hour before the game, and we'll see if we can find him. Uh, Heidelberg at John Carroll is worth a, uh, worth a peek at in the afternoon. So is Salisbury at Western New England. You mentioned Denison at Wabash. We talked about Warburg at Dubuque. And then, of course, Claremont Mudscripts at Redlands. Is that a conference game? Are we up to conference games yet in the Skyac, or are they, is this still a fake non-conference game? That's a good question. I believe that they are playing conference games this week. It's not a conference game. It is uh, Greg, not. I was wrong. That <laughs> was not. That was not my on the spot for you. Conference no, play is... does not start until October first in the Skyac. So I put Greg on the spot already. Going to put you on the spot one more time. This is a game I'm going to call the two Utes. What is a Ute? Oh, excuse me, Your Honor. Two youths. I'm sorry, the two U's. Utica and Union play each other this week, and I need you to pick a winner of Utica and Union. And then, as long as we're at it, here are the other games between teams who start with the same letter. You got Utica and Union, you got Mount Union and Muskingum, you've got CUC and CUW, that's Concordia, Chicago, and Concordia, Wisconsin, then you got CNU and CUA, that's Christopher Newport and Catholic University. So am I only doing the U's, or, or do I get them all? No, give me all four, and be thankful that uh, the WIAC hasn't started conference play yet, or we'd have four more matchups of UW versus UW. All right. Union versus Utica. Utica off to a 3-0 start. Pretty interesting spot for them in the Empire 8. Also, we've talked about Utica maybe looking for another division to play in. I'm buying Union this year. Uh, Union made my top 25 this week. So give me Union over Utica. Mount Union at Muskingum. Muskingum, a uh, beautiful new place to play in. And Mount Union uh, will make themselves right at home and beat Muskingum fairly handily in that one. CUW and CUC. I'm going to go with Concordia, Wisconsin over Concordia, Chicago in the NAC. Bye, 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 bye. And then Christopher Newport and Catholic U. I'm going to go with, ooh, man, Christopher Newport just came off of, they've lost two in a row to Averett and this week to Apprentice, but close games. Catholic, one in three, little better competition for that. Uh, I'm going to go with the homestanding 
Christopher Newport captains to beat Catholic. That is a little bit awkward. I'm sorry. Could be so much worse. I used to co-host this podcast with a guy from a team from a program whose team has just wiped the walls with Catholic for a good number of years running. Yeah. Guru Bowl has not gone in CUA's favor recently. But I really did enjoy getting the opportunity to throw out there the 27th anniversary of the epic 50 to 50 tie on Twitter, revisiting that story, that oral history, which I actually had a lot of fun putting together two years ago. It's a great story. Everybody should read that about the time in college football when you could have ties. All right. Hit me. What you got? All right. My on the spot this week, Pat, is going to be we're going to call it Animal Kingdom Upset. I want you to give me I want you to give me two winners this week of teams whose mascots would absolutely not in nature win a game against the team that they are playing. Ah, okay. What we're doing is we're taking that traditional uh, March Madness bracket ploy from people who don't know much about uh, college basketball and then turning it on its head. I like this. Hmm. Okay, so I think this rules out like the very first game on the list, North Central Cardinals against the Blue Jays of Elmhurst, because I'm pretty sure I think I feel like the Blue Jays a more vicious urban bird, but we'll we'll uh, we'll come back to that. The Terriers and the Tigers. No, but I have to pick against nature, right? Yes, we're picking the Animal Kingdom upset. Hmm. Well, you could take a flyer on Hiram. Take a flyer, indeed. Now, if I'm taking a flyer, it has to be on the Blue Jays or the Cardinals, right? Ooh. Very nice. That's totally staying in the podcast. Bobcats and Jumbos. Interesting. I don't quite know. I'd be interested in picking the Bobcats-Jumbos game between Tufts and Bates, but I'm not entirely sure what to think of between a Bobcat and an elephant. I think I'd go elephant on that one as being the Animal Kingdom favorite in that. One bobcat versus an elephant I don't think would work out. I've watched a little bit of Animal Planet, Pat. I can tell. That's good. We're going to need your expertise here. can leave out almost the entire MIAC. They're all named after people. The hawks and the bison. What would you give me in a hawk-bison matchup, Mr. Animal Planet? Um, One-on-one bison, for sure. I don't know that a hawk could do enough damage on a bison to to win that one well we've extremely shortened the process by which i've looked through a good number of the hundred games on saturday but i'm gonna go with adrian the bulldogs over finlandia the lions right we would favor in nature a lion over a bulldog but we're definitely going to favor the adrian bulldogs over finlandia's lions and then how about Bengals and Mustangs. Who would Animal Planet favor here? The Bengal Tiger. Yeah, so I'm going to take the Morrisville State Mustangs over the Buffalo State Bengals. And I had to get all the way to 3 o'clock and 5 o'clock starts on Saturday to find games that I felt comfortable with here for your Animal Kingdom upset. Very good. I would have also accepted perhaps Baldwin Wallace over ONU, but maybe you don't think that Baldwin Wallace is going to win that game this weekend. Maybe I don't. It's a good question. I no longer know what to think of Baldwin Wallace. I mean, you know, they've not looked great so far. No, one of the surprising 0-3 teams uh, lost to John Carroll for the 10th straight year. They beat Wilmington by one. 
I think every every game is hard to win in college football, and you'd savor every win no matter no matter how much or how close it was. We got all the way to almost an hour into this podcast before Greg pulled out the coaching aphorism that's usually up at the top. <clears throat> all right, spot check. Here we go. How badly did I pick these NESCAC games from last Saturday? So we did the NESCAC stack last week, Pat, and you started very well with Wesleyan over Bates, and that was also your highest margin of victory, and that is exactly what happened. Wesleyan defeated Bates 41-10, to and then things really went south for you. You did correctly pick Trinity over Tufts, although that was only a three-point game. That was your second highest margin of victory game. And then in the other three games, uh, you incorrectly identified the winners. Uh, Hamilton did not beat Bowdoin. Amherst did not beat Middlebury and Williams did not beat Colby. Like if it was a Nezcac Jenga stack, like it all kind of came tumbling down for you there. <laughs> Pretty quickly though. The, the nice part about a Nezcac Jenga stack is there just aren't very many levels, right? So your game was pretty similar, actually. You had to pick five games in order of margin of victory and you had to pick winners in them. And so you had to pick these five games uh, Mary Harden Baylor Southwestern, Muhlenberger Sinus, Albion Rose Holman, Baldwin Wallace John Carroll, and Pacific Lutheran Laverne pick a winner and the order of margin of victory. And the good news is that you picked four of the five winners. So I'll take good it. there. Everything but uh, Ursinus Muhlenberg. The order starts off really, really well, and it almost ends really, really well, but here it goes. So Mary Harden-Baylor beat Southwestern by 54. That was your number one. Your number two was PLU beating ULV by 41, and that is the second most as well. Albion over Rose Holman by 32. That was where you put your third greatest margin of victory. Then four and five are reversed. Ursinus won by seven. You had them fourth. John Carroll beat Baldwin-Wallace by 14, but you had them fifth, but that's like a good, solid, you know, eight out of 10. I'll take that. That was a lot of moving parts in that one. Not a bad win percentage there for me. I'll take that. That's maybe maybe my one of my best on the spots ever. Last week in quick hits, game of the week. Here's the ones that were picked. Harden-Simmons at Platteville, not a close game, although obviously it seemed important. I picked Hope at Mount St. Joseph. I was very happy with that, and it was certainly a good game. Frank? Picked Grove City at Carnegie Mellon. That was also a good game. Tips picked Muhlenberger or Sinus. That was also a good pick for games of the week. Everyone missed on upsets. I can be honest with you. Every time I think it's none, I always am quite wrong. It was definitely not a right answer. Uh, Carnegie Mellon was a pick. They were not upset. Delaware Valley and Heidelberg were not even challenged. All of our hitters except for Frank uh, hit on either St. Scholastica or UW-Stevens Point or both, breaking 10-game losing streaks. Bonus points for everybody who went with the exacta on that. Frank uh, swung for the fences with Teal, but the Tomcats streak wasn't extended to 40 games. In the OAC rivalries, everybody picked Heidelberg and John Carroll, except for me. I took a flyer on Baldwin Wallace and got stung. Our surprising 0-3 teams uh, were a mix of Rose Holman, Franklin, and Redlands. Frank again went out on a limb with Dubuque, but the Spartans did get into the 2022 win column with a win over Nebraska Wesleyan. You want to know what our picks are next week? You can see them on the website on a Friday morning. And this was Around the Nation podcast number 311 released on September 19th of 2022. 
Thanks for listening and keep an eye out for our continuing coverage throughout the week. You can support production of this podcast and the D3Sports.com family of websites in general by visiting patreon.com slash D3Sports. But even if you can't afford to support us financially, you can help us out by telling a friend, a, a classmate, a fellow alum about the show, and you can rate and review us in the various places where people rate and review podcasts. 89 reviews on Apple Podcasts with a 4.9 star rating. We're very thankful for all of those. I believe you can rate us on Spotify as well. That'd be cool. We see more uh, ratings on Spotify. We've been on Spotify now for about three and a half years. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter using the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football. Greg is at Wally Wabash. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know? Join the conversation by registering to post at D3Boards.com. Also, you can follow D3Football.com on Facebook. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Our theme music is Power 2 by DJ Mentos. We use more of his tracks as well. And you can find them at DJMentos.com as well as on Spotify. Thanks to Greg Thomas, my co-host. And, of course, thanks to the originator of Around the Nation on D3Football.com, Keith McMillan, whose name is now the one you hear basically at the end of every one of these podcasts. What I need to do is find more Keith McMillan clips that I can just rotate through the end of the podcast now, right? <laughs> yes. That's a good idea. Just random Keith-isms from any random cold open from the middle, from like the middle hundred pods. <laughs> Reminds me of the time that Frank co-hosted. The time that Frank co-hosted, my God, was a lifesaver though. I think it can be said publicly now, Frank co-hosted because... Keith McMillan fell asleep while writing his part of the podcast. And to Frank's credit, A, Frank is up at like 1 a.m. Eastern time. And B, he basically took the notes that uh, that Keith had written for the pod. He was fully written and ready to go. And then and, and Frank just basically uh, played the part of Keith McMillan with a little extra emphasis on the East region, I suppose. Yeah, there you go. It's behind the podcast right there. These are the things you get. When you listen to the end of the podcast, oh, that's another key thing that we have, though. It's like, oh, you listen to the end of the podcast and then there's no cool little outtakes thing here. I could put that at the end of this. That would be a good one to throw at the end. Sorry, you stayed to the end of the podcast this week and there's no cool bonus anything. Next week, though. I mean, I could go get that trombone.